Konnichiwa, listeners, and welcome to the Saga of Japan podcast with Charles Shanahan. Before we get into it, I want to send you all my personal thanks. While we are only on episode 6, the response from you amazing listeners has been so encouraging. It's not much, but this week, in order to help show my gratitude, I will be releasing a two-part episode. I am very excited as I have been looking forward to the events in these two episodes, such as the Ishii incident, in part 2, since I started this podcast. We'll be resuming our normal Tuesday release schedule next week. Whether it's your first time joining us, or if you followed us since the beginning of the saga, thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen. Without further gilding the lily, let's begin Episode 6, The Fall of the Soga, Part 1. One thing that can often be a challenge when studying history is keeping track of all of the names. This is compounded if many of the names are completely foreign or alien to you. For example, in this two-part special, we will introduce a person called Sogo no Ishikawa no Maro. I wanted to take a moment to recap the names we needed to remember for these two episodes in order to help keep the story straight. First, there's the Empress Suiko, who in last week's episode ascended to the throne of the Kingdom of Yamato. Granted, the title of Empress was added later, she still fulfilled the same role as a supreme heavenly being descended from the sun goddess Amaterasu. An intelligent woman, well-versed in political intrigue and having witnessed firsthand the pitfalls of court through her relatives. Two of her brothers, both former emperors, had been assassinated, and formerly Suiko had been a consort to Emperor Bidatsu, who during his reign tried to strengthen ties with the Korean kingdoms. Empress Suiko is backed by the powerful Soga clan, led by clan leader Umako. Umako was a key figure in pushing for many reforms imported from China and Korea. While his father had laid the foundations, Umako expended power by defeating enemy clans who opposed foreign ideas and doctrines, particularly Buddhism. Chief among them had been the Nakatomi clan, who after being overshadowed by the Soga, had been quietly up to this point putting themselves in positions of power within the native Shinto religion. Umako was not alone in his desire to see Buddhism spread throughout the land, and was aided in fact by the father of Japanese Buddhism, Prince Shotoku. Shotoku, a nephew of Suiko, who had blood ties to the Soga clan, was instrumental in early writings and teachings of Buddhism within Japan. Even within his own time, he enjoyed great popularity, co-ruling alongside Suiko and seeking to establish a merit-based system within the government, as well as authoring a treatise on morality called the 17-Article Constitution, which stressed virtues like always striving to maintain harmony. Together with Humako, Shotoku had also written one of Japan's earliest historical texts called the Tenoki. However, for reasons we will arrive at in part two, the Tenoki has sadly been lost to time. Together, these three are major driving forces during what's known as the Osaka Enlightenment, a transformative period of Japan lasting from 538 to 710 CE. Not limited to only domestic affairs, in 607, Suiko, Shotoku, and Umako sent envoys to the short-lived Sui dynasty of China. When the diplomat, named Imako, arrives at the Sui court, he is instructed to read this letter out to the Sui ruler. Quote, our queen has heard that beyond the ocean to the west there is a sovereign who reveres and promotes Buddhism. For that reason, we have been sent to pay our respects. The child of heaven in the land where the sun rises addresses the son of heaven in the land where the sun sets. The Sui ruler was actually offended by this, the implication being that the sun was setting on the Sui dynasty, which we know in hindsight it was, while rising on the Yamato kingdom. While rising on the Yamato kingdom. Shotoku and the others sought acknowledgement that Yamato, and Japan as a whole by extension, was equal to China. After all, the earliest Chinese name for Japan, the Kingdom of Wa, is represented by the Chinese character for submissive, distant dwarf. 
The characters that replaced it meant harmony, peace, and balance. This letter is actually the first time in any record that the Japanese nation is referred to as Nihon, meaning the land of the rising sun. Nice job, Envoy Imiko. You may get MVP of this episode. When the Sui Dynasty does collapse in 618, it is replaced by the much longer-lived Tong Dynasty, who will usher in a cultural golden age for China. During the Tong Dynasty, styles of art and music will be imported to Japan. We cannot forget that the Nihon Shoki, the earliest, albeit biased, history we have to rely upon, was originally written using Chinese script. This influence is also seen in how several events are portrayed or described, such as songs being sung. We're told in one instance of a banquet that Umako stood up and sang a song to the Empress Suiko, the lyrics of which are, quote, When I look upon the August sky, whence there stands forth, from the manifold fence of clouds which conceals her, the great sovereign, who rules us tranquilly, for myriads of ages, say we, may it ever be thus. With deep reverence, we would serve her. With profound obedience, we would serve her. And so ends my song. The Empress replies, in her own song, saying, My good Soga, the sons of Soga, were they horses, they would be the steeds of Hyuga. Were they swords, they would be the good blades of Kure. Right indeed seems the great sovereign to have in her service the sons of Soga. End quote. While this sounds like an event that's more likely to happen in a musical than in a Japanese imperial court, this style of expression where people would complete each other's verses will actually take shape in subsequent eras. Umako, now an aging man in his 70s, knew the time was approaching that his son, named Emishi, would begin to learn and take over his responsibilities as great minister. While Shotoku had instituted a merit-based system among court officials, positions could still be inherited, particularly if you're as powerful as the Soga clan. Contrasting with Umako, Emishi was far more politically ambitious, and very much so a believer in the ends justifying the means. Emishi was also intelligent, like Umako, and willing to do whatever was necessary to preserve Soga dominance. To Emishi, no one was above the Soga, and to criticize him or his clan was to sign your own death warrant. In 622, at the age of 49, Prince Shotoku passes away, leaving behind 23 successors, chief among them a young man named Prince Yamashiro no Oe. Yamashiro sought to emulate his father, practicing virtuousness and adherence to Buddhist doctrine. On his deathbed, Shotoku instructed Yamashiro and others to avoid wickedness of every kind and practice good of every kind, a philosophy that Yamashiro would do his best to always follow. Four years later, great minister Soga no Umako would die at the age of 75 and be officially succeeded by his son Emishi. Umako was placed in a burial mound in modern-day Nara Prefecture, called Ishibutai Kofun, which you can still visit today. Unlike many other known burial mounds, the only remnants are the stone part of the tomb, with the dirt that would have surrounded it being stripped away, likely later when the Soga clan fell from power. The Nihon Shoki text describes this as a time of famine, crime, and death, where robbers grew exponentially and could not be put down. Celestial signs such as eclipses begin to appear. We already know from the previous episodes that the chroniclers of this time period were far from unbiased, and they likely had an agenda when emphasizing the bad as well as the good. Adding to said bad pile, in 628, just two years after Umako's death, Empress Suiko would also pass away. Unlike previous rulers, in keeping with her Buddhist beliefs, she specifically requested that her people avoid building a new, costly tomb. On her deathbed, Suiko summoned two potential heirs to the throne, the grandson of former Emperor Bidatsu, 
Prince Tamara, and Prince Yamashiro. You might hope at this point that clear instructions are left to both as to who would succeed her, preferably with witnesses. However, in delivering her last messages to them, she actually leaves at best vague succession instructions, throwing into doubt who would actually sit upon the chrysanthemum throne. A potential crisis now looming, Amishi called together the ministers to his home under the pretense of a feast. After a night of great food, just before the ministers departed at the end of the evening, Amishi suddenly turned to address the gathering. The empress is dead, leaving no successor. If measures are not taken promptly, civil disturbances are to be feared. Which, therefore, of the princes is to be her successor? Amishi then spun an obviously invented tale of how Suiko had clearly chosen Tamara over Yamashiro. It's likely that Amishi, in reality, saw Tamara as the weaker ruler, more easily controlled, more malleable. But he didn't feel he had the power at the time to just unilaterally declare Tamara the heir. Despite Amishi's story, some still felt that Prince Yamashiro maintained strong claim to rule. His strong lineage, being the son of Prince Shotoku and the grandson of Umako, made for an impressive resume. Among them was the late Umako's brother, Marisei, who knew his brother Amishi all too well to take the story at face value. After one minister steps forward, agreeing with Amishi, the other ministers begin debating the issue and the meaning of Suiko's last vague words, with some advocating Yamashiro instead should rule. Marisei, known for his hot temper, stormed out of the meeting in an indignant rage, knowing that Amishi was pushing a farce. Seeing that there would not be any agreement, Amishi dismissed the gathering for the night and sent a thinly veiled warning to Marisei that although he was family, and therefore he didn't want to hurt him, he needed to hold his tongue or else who knows what he might be forced to do. Marisei, not one for subtlety, disobeys this order. Instead of speaking aloud, however, he demonstrates his support for Yamashiro through actions by visiting the said prince. To Amishi, this could potentially be an act of rebellion. After all, who knows what Marisei could be plotting with Yamashiro. However, Yamashiro had not officially claimed the right of succession or confronted his rival, casting doubt over whether he would even seek the throne. To try and head off any potential conspiracies or plots, Amishi sends a letter to Yamashiro, asking that Marisei be returned home. Marisei asked Yamashiro why he had not claimed the right to succeed Suiko. Yamashiro explains to Marisei, quote, It is kind of you to come, not forgetting the gratitude owed to Prince Shotoku, but the peace of the empire is now threatened on my sole account. When my father died, near his end, he addressed his children, saying, Avoid wickedness of every kind. Practice good of every kind. I heard this speech and have made it my constant rule of life. On this account, although I have my own sentiments, I am patient and am not wrathful. I cannot set myself in opposition to my uncle. I pray you not be afraid to reform your views, yield to the many, and continue public service. End quote. Yamashiro clearly sought to avoid civil war on his account, and was unwilling to take any actions that could lead to violence. Openly weeping, for he was unable to disobey the commands of Yamashiro, Marisei returned home. Perhaps Amishi would have let this little excursion slide. Perhaps not. In the end, it did not matter. For when the Soga clan later met once more to discuss the construction of a tomb for Umako, Marisei did not even bother trying to hide his feelings on the matter of succession. Amishi was not only in attendance at this meeting, but leading it. Family or not, the Soga clan leader could no longer let Marisei's defiant insubordination continue. Amishi ordered armed soldiers to the house of Marisei and his family, 
Upon learning that the soldiers were on their way, Manuse took his son Aya to the gates of his house and stoically sat in a chair waiting, knowing what fate awaited him. When the troops arrived, soldiers strangled Marise and killed Aya. One son of Marise, a ladies' man named Ketsu, almost escaped by hiding in a temple among the priestesses. However, popularity among the ladies, if you get my meaning, is a bit of a double-edged sword when they're all gathered in the same temple. And one jealous lady scorned later, Ketsu was sold out to the Soga soldiers. He fled to a nearby mountain where he was quickly surrounded. Seeing no escape, he committed suicide by stabbing himself in the throat. These brutal politics were characteristic of the ambitious, cunning, and authoritarian Amishi, but the assassination of Marise and subsequent killing of his family was no small matter. A ruthless and cruel act, done to a family member no less, would be remembered by Amishi's enemies, the list of which was growing with every tyrannical act. With Marise and his family dead, and Yamashiro unable to risk civil war, Amishi was now able to place Prince Tamara on the throne. Upon taking the throne, Prince Tamara became the Emperor Jomei. The grandson of Emperor Bidatsu, Jomei ended up taking Princess Takara, the great-granddaughter of Emperor Bidatsu, for his wife. During their marriage, Prince Takara will give birth to a future emperor of Japan, Prince Naka no Oe. Through all of this, Prince Yamashiro said nothing. Patient and confident that one day, the time to seize his birthright would come. In fact, Yamashiro had been spending time as a monk. During this time, it's possible that he became the mysterious poet Sarumaru no Taifu, one of the 36 poetic sages of Japan. However, the figure of Sarumaru is so mysterious that we know nearly nothing about him, and so we will probably never know if Yamashiro and he are the same. Sogo no Emishi would use Emperor Jomei's reign to continue pushing centralizing authority and other reforms. During this time, the Nihon Shoki mentions more entries on celestial signs, such as comets and meteors thunderously striking the ground, solar eclipses, and even a short scandalous entry, in which people accused of affairs with the court maids are put to death, with one man stabbing himself in the throat after being tortured. A lot of that stabbing the throat stuff going around this episode. How many throat stabbings does it take before I need to mark an episode as not safe for work? Asking for a friend. To recap, three major figures of classical Japan, Suiko, Shotoku, and Umako, have left us, leaving their successors, Jomei, Yamashiro, and Emishi, respectively, to take up their mantles. The Soga have begun nearing the zenith of their power. As with anything, though, the higher you climb, the more treacherous the fall. And the Soga have made their share of enemies over the course of generations. The Nakatomi, a clan who you will recall has been opposed to the Soga and Buddhism since episode 4. Chief among them, the Nakatomi, a clan who you will recall has been opposed to the Soga and Buddhism since episode 4. The Nakatomi are now led by a man called Kamatari, a cunning strategist and intelligent man. Kamatari is not the only one plotting against the Soga, as Yamashiro waits patiently for his moment to arrive. In part 2, Kamatari and others will pit their wits and strength against the Soga in a struggle for control of Japan. I'll leave you for now with a writing by Emperor Jomei. Quote, Countless are the mountains in Yamato, but perfect is the heavenly hill of Kagu. When I climb it and survey my realm, over the wide plain the smoke wreaths rise and rise. Over the wide lake the gulls are on the wing. A beautiful land it is, the land of Yamato. To be continued in the fall of the Soga, part two.